Deadlifting or what? No, what? no it, it's it's an old injury I have for like a really long time. Like, like I, how old? Like, I mean, a long time. Like, you know, back in the day. Oh man, still messing with you. That must have been really, yeah, really was, heavy. Yeah, I was, I was carrying something around, man. Like, what? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I know you guys probably thought I was one of the extra talent guys that carried Macho Man of the Ring, but I'm not that old. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that would have been a good gig. Yeah. That's like. Mm. Nor was I one of those unlucky bastards that had to, like, carry Mabel to the ring. Oh, like it was King Mabel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Poor Jeff. Yeah. But yeah. that, but just to let you know, that's, I, I, not the same age as them. They're a little bit older than me. I know I look like it, but I'm not. <laughs> I believe, I believe you. But, uh, but no, I, I think part of the reason why my back hurts so much from, you know, carrying something heavy, it's by carrying you guys on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> you, you said it so casually and mean. It was just <laughs> fucked. Oh, just like everything before we got on microphone, right, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> You're not having a rough time. Let Jake shake your cage. <laughs> just wakes you up and makes you pay attention. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, you know, welcome to Tim Bell Pod, where we hurt our co host fillings apparently and then we do great the rest of the episode maybe <laughs> i am nick alexander and i got a hundred and forty one and two-third chance of hosting this podcast alongside michael loving hey and we're in the manning cave with the legend of tent core the king of camp style the man scout jake manning uh how much do i have to pay to actually own the rights of those those titles you made up for me. You know what? You can have them. This is this holds up in court. Yeah, this no, is this a recording. Of legal, me telling yeah, you. Uh, it's legally binding. Okay. I was gonna say because like I was like I feel like I can't really use that to the popularity. I can't make a T-shirt of that, or else I got to make a cut. You basically what I'm saying is you're like Stone Cold's ex-wife. Like you basically <laughs> said, sit down before you you your tea gets Stone Cold. Oh, you're gonna be Stone Cold Steve Austin, and then I got to pay you millions of dollars in court for those monikers. Today we are covering. A king of the ring, a very temporary hardcore champion, a man who broke the face bones of mean Mark Callis. He was Mabel, or Viscera, or Big Daddy V. Or as many of the commentators called him, Barney the Dinosaur, Humpty Dumpty, fatter than Charles Barkley. That was was messed up. That was was rough. Oh man, why? A planet, Don King, the illegitimate love child of Fat Albert and Mr. T. Oh, it's my, it's my favorite. Huge Hefner. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Lawler was on fire. And, yeah, basically all Lawler. And I just want to say, fuck you, the man did inside cradles. So, yeah. <laughs> Nelson Frazier Jr. was born February 14th, 1971 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. On this day... Someone also won the Daytona 500, his third of seven Daytona wins. You guys, uh, I'm guessing Jake knows this. I feel like this is something Jake would know. Uh, I'm going Richard Petty. Oh, Nick gets a point. 71, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Surprised I know that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was going to go like uh, Jumbo Bill Elliott. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Digging deep. Deep Uh cut. This movie was first shown on TV. Hint is not from my cold, dead hands. Planet of the Apes? No, but you're thinking correctly. 
Ben Hur. Boom. Nah. <laughs> Uh, one last thing. The exact same day Mabel was born, Tommy Dreamer was born. Exact uh, fucking day. Oh, didn't realize they were Eskimo birthday brothers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will see your facts about that date and raise you a fun fact about Goldsboro, North Carolina. It was almost the site of the end of the world. Oh. And 1961, an American B-52 accidentally dropped two hydrogen bombs on Goldsboro, North Carolina. Oh, fuck, yeah, fuck. Uh, neither of them detonated, obviously. And more, <laughs> more fun fact, they only found one of them. Yeah, because the other one's in some rednecks barn. So yeah, if you're if you're in Goldsboro, get out. Actually, if where we're at right now, get out. Too. Yeah, really. <laughs> we're in the blast area. <laughs> the man in the fallout. Yeah. All right. So Nelson grew up huge fan of pro wrestling, and being from the Carolinas, he always had the NWA around, and he looked up to guys like Bam Bam Bigelow, Andre the Giant, and Hulk Hogan. He amateur wrestled in high school, and after graduating, he headed straight to pro wrestling school. And that's a trade school. Like, that's an option. That's, like, something guidance counselors could recommend. Well, in, in the Carolinas, yes. This was, like, the seed of a very successful wrestling territory. And basically, if you made contacts with Jim Crockett Promotions and you, you know, watered the grass at Crockett Park and <laughs> set up the ring and were okay with getting the crap beat out of you by Gene Anderson or, you know, whoever was training at the time and you survived it, then you would grow up to be basically Starship Coyote and then later become Scott Hall and Razor Ramon. So it was (laughs) a viable path. And much like, you know, most successful people, sometimes you need that person that comes before you that's like, oh yeah, there's a clear path to success. Yeah, yeah. So like, obviously like this guy was successful and he was here and I just follow the same path and then I will become successful as well. So hide it. High school guidance counselor did the same exact thing. Like, yeah, sure, that's doable because I've seen, you know, my neighbor do it. So, (laughs) well, speaking of Gene Anderson, that is who Nelson was trained by. And Mabel was actually the very last person, or at least one of the last people Gene ever trained before he passed away. No, I'm not 100% sure. I, I, I did a little bit of research where this would have happened, where Gene Anderson would have trained him. I'm assuming it's at Nelson Royal's barn oh nice because i i think that's where there was a ring set up locally and a lot of guys got trained there and and nelson trained some guys and i think gene was helping out over there or at least he was friends with nelson because uh nelson royal like he still has a western wear store obviously he doesn't have it anymore obviously his family has it but it's still named nelson royal's western wear store and it was really famous with like all the wrestlers like rock and roll express when they would get their paycheck from jim crocker i'm going to western wear yeah they would go to (laughs) nelson's and just buy a bunch of snakeskin cowboy boots and and just put them and in put the, them on the pile that they have in their house of snakeskin cowboy boots yes pretty much but in the back there they had a barn where they had a ring set up and, and a lot of people were trained back there a lot of preliminary wrestlers a lot of guys that went on to work the kind of the territories a lot of guys that worked south atlantic which is where ken shamrock first started there's like there's a clip circulating online right now of a young Ken Shamrock with a mullet wrestling for South Atlantic Championship <laughs> Wrestling and kind of have that connection. So I think that's probably exactly because it would have been not too far away from Goldsboro. Yeah. It would have been just off the interstate. I'm assuming that's where it would have been. I might be making this up and had a wonderful story in doing so. Nelson broke into the business in late 92 with Willie Clay Wrestling Promotions out of Concord, North Carolina. You ever heard of that? Oh, I know who Willie Clay <laughs> the is. Next, the next 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, we could talk about Willie Clay. Willie Clay, also 
Five Dollar Wrestling Superstar Ooh, Willie Clay. Yeah. Willie Clay was one of the was the main event of the first ever Five Dollar Wrestling show. Oh shit! Before we kind of defined what Five Dollar Wrestling was, and he was very upset with what I did with him, <laughs> and I had many conversations and made him very upset. Uh-huh. And people felt I disrespected him, and oh, he trashed shit. me on Facebook for a while. It was a whole drama thing, but later on. Willie saw what I was doing and saw the potential of what I was trying to put out into the world. And I'll be honest, like me and Willie Clay got to be pretty good friends. And Willie Clay, I think he did a little work on this house. This 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 house? Yeah, he did. I'm trying to remember what he did. I think he did something on my roof because he was like a contractor (laughs) by trade. Like just like would do random stuff. And he, well quote-unquote fixed a lot of the high spots cars <laughs> no. some of them uh broke down quickly after he got his hands on them but uh he was definitely he attempted to help My, <laughs> michael bikiki at highspots.com loved willie clay because he would do something cheaper than everybody else and it would work just good enough yeah. like as opposed to getting it fixed right the first time you and get paying, by you get by and happy and, and paying double for it and then never having an issue with it ever again michael's like no no no, no. i'd rather pay half price and then this thing fall apart faster than expected <laughs> but it but as far as construction work, he was great. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away, oh. I believe, because of cancer, which was real sad. But uh, he also ran for mayor of Concord <laughs> nice. while fighting cancer. He's a, he was he was quite the man. He was definitely a character. Yeah. If like my life was a sitcom, like he he definitely would have been like a Floyd the Barber or a, like a Gomer Pyle s type character. Like he walks just, into the scene, the the crowd goes ah. Yeah, he he would have been those like comes in, messes stuff up, frustrates me, and then that's basically where the conflict is created. Yeah. Ran shows a lot, a lot too. Also, too, uh, freight train five dollars thing superstar used to wrestle on the shows too. Nice. So he's he and actually I also wrestle on a Willie Clay show myself. So there's my Boom. there's no six degrees separation between me <laughs> and Mabel where it just. Right there, one connection. And Kevin Bacon was the ref, so it was all tied together with the shit. <laughs> Absolutely. And 1997, PWI number 470 out of 500 for Willie Clay. So oh, nice. made the list. Mm-hmm. With Willie Clay, Mabel would debut under a mask as part of the Death Squad, tagging up with his old pal, Robert Horn, who is a very important person in the story of Mabel, as Robert Horn would later become Mo. From there, they'd head over to Professional Wrestling Federation owned by Italian Stallion and none other than the Ten Bell Pod Oracle himself, Mr. Number One, George South. Oh, what's an oracle? <laughs> <laughs> I, what is that? Who's I don't know. Is it orca? I remember that movie. I didn't see it. It looked boring. Jaws ripoff. I mean, come on. The original's the best. Come on. Yes, George South, you may call him the Oracle. I call him the deep throat of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I use him for my sources on everything. Not Linda Lovelace, just to be clear. Yes, correct. Thank you. <laughs> that, that was a much needed drop. I was just because some people might not get the, all the President's Mint reference. I am barely old enough to get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny thing about the Pro Wrestling Federation, I just found a t-shirt from George South from the PWF, which is on my Instagram, at ManscoutManic. Might as well I was very jealous there. when I found out Jake got that. You for, walked we, right by. We, you walked we, right by. No, no, no. When I got there, nothing was set up yet. Okay. I went there for the shirts and all they had the, was the pictures. And you, do we want to talk about what the price on it was? Because that was kind of the George re- react to that. Oh, yes. Basically, to cover the detail, we, we went to an art show together. Yeah. And uh, it was a pro wrestling art show. 
and Micah just missed out on them sitting at a gimmick table because it's a pro wrestling show, <laughs> even though it's an art show. And somebody had vintage pro wrestling t-shirts and they had like The Rock, DX. Uh, they were selling one of The Rock shirts for $125. Ooh. They also had a Goldberg t-shirt that I own and they were selling it for 75 bucks, which is crazy. Mm. But they had a PWF George South t-shirt that they were selling for $25. And 25 it was, bucks. 25 bucks. And George was like, what? <laughs> I only sold it for six because I got it for five. <laughs> I got this wicked hand-drawn picture of, of Hulk Hogan as the immortal Hulk Hogan. And then he's just regular. And then the mortal Hulk Hogan, which is just a skull with the bandana on it. Still, <laughs> I'll post that on our Instagram or something, too. It's a great damn picture. This is true. But back to PWF and George South. When I talked to George about that I was going to be doing this episode. George was like, oh, we had him first. <laughs> George describes this scene because they ran a lot of shows in armories in North Carolina that him and Italian Stallion, they had an armory show and, you know, the, the big loading dock doors up and George describes being in front of that armory, like loading dock door. And George was like, oh, hey, like I knew something was going on because all of a sudden the sun like went dark, <laughs> like he blocked out the sun, bullet. Like an eclipse occurred. Yeah, an eclipse occurred, and then there before me, I see this four hundred pound professional wrestler in front of me, and this little guy called Mo. Like <laughs> Mo, who is still enormous. George talked about like how they just showed up and they asked if they could be on the show, and of course, Italian Stallion and George South being equal opportunity exploiters, they're like, "Come on, let's do this." You know, be on the show, and and George is like, "Oh, we took them everywhere." They basically got in the van that drove everywhere and did all these shows at army bases, churches, armories, school shows in West Virginia. That George took them everywhere. And they did all kinds of shows and just everywhere they could take these guys, they would. Because that was what always would happen is like George would find some guys and like, hey, we got all these shows and just book them as many days as possible. And then they would get all this experience, and then they would get a little opportunity with, with WWF, WWE, and all of a sudden they'd be gone, and then George would find a new group of guys that, that one needed experience. Yeah. It was almost like, a, like this un-kind of spoken developmental, but it, it wasn't really developmental. It was more like your first step into professional wrestling. It was yeah. the thing that got you to developmental, yeah. that got you to this place. And also, too, another thing that George South and Italian Stallion did is they um, were in charge of – you know, extra talent bookings. And they, they kind of wrangle that because when you are, you know, running WCW or WWF, WWE, and you're running TV, you have a lot of job guys. Yeah, okay, cool. And as opposed to getting on the phone 14 times and booking 14 different job guys, <laughs> yeah. and you got to do this every single week, every month, almost, you know, like that would just be way too ridiculous. It's, nice and comforting to just pick up one phone one time make one phone call and this guy's gonna bring 30 guys kill 30 birds with one stone. and you are good for the however month or how many tapings you're doing and you know when wcw and wwe wwf just has to pick up the phone once they're ecstatic yeah. and they were in the loop that way as well so and obviously george south and italian stallion they would get these guys wrestling shows so that way when they brought them to tv they, they would be complimented, like, oh, these guys are good. They, yeah. they know how to wrestle. And then their reputation goes up. And right? their reputation yeah. goes up, and knowing that these guys are going to wrestle 
multiple match, like 50 matches before they ever get to you. So they're going to be good enough. Cause back in the day when Mike Jackson would do it, sometimes Mike Jackson on the way to the building, he would find a gas station attendant and be like, Hey, what are you doing for the next couple hours? You want to make X amount of dollars and get the <laughs> shit beat out of you by the Steiner brothers. And they would know nothing. And they would just, and that's why a lot of the job guy matches, like some of the guys that were in the ring for those job guy matches had never wrestled before. That's and there's terrifying. a gas station with no one working there. <laughs> Nobody's working it. Like it's totally just unattended. Unattended. No gas is coming through. But it doesn't matter. Gas is like 79 cents at that time. Oh, God, so the good old days. They could just give it away for free. So obviously seeing a guy of that size and bringing him an extra talent, like that's going to turn some heads. Also, too, George slammed Mabel. Wow, really? Yes. It, but of course, George's like, oh, it's very, very Andre the Giantish. Like, he, he got up himself. Like that's how agile yeah, he was. Yeah. Is he could he could get up for a slam right away. So you know, George is just seeing dollar signs. Yeah. With, with Mabel, in the sense that like, oh God, this guy could take a slam. He's got a good attitude. He shows up on time. Works hard. Willing to go anywhere. Willing to just jump in the back of a van and go to a town and go wrestle. Like this guy is amazing. And George still talks very highly of Mabel to this day. A lot of people like to kind of shed on Mabel, but great athlete. I mean, for a monster, for a mammoth of a man. Getting uh, into this, I was surprised at yeah. what I've kind of heard, just, you know, how he's talked about in comments and just has history has defined him now. But I was like, oh, man, he's doing some stuff. And yeah. I was truly like, dude could move. Yeah. But so, most importantly, attitude. Yeah. 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 The, the, the fact that at this moment in time, when he wants to break into wrestling and he wants to just get his, just get in the ring and learn, and he, he seeks out Italian Salon and George South, and, you know, they give him a bunch of dates, and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll jump in the back of a van and yeah. wrestle in Johnson City, Tennessee for you. Sure, no problem. And, and not think twice about it. I mean, you, we're going to talk about a lot of runs, a lot of hires, rehires, places he goes, and you're like, why? Why did this happen? I'll tell you why. Attitude. Yeah. Just having a good attitude and showing up to work on time trumps whatever ability and talent you have every single time, especially in the long run. I think it's what I don't want to say his name, but Woody Allen. <laughs> I think he's got the quote, 95% of success is showing up and it's yeah. fucking spot on. Uh, also important footnotes from PWF is uh, this is when they changed their name to the Harlem Knights and they were also managed by George South they won the PWF Tag Team Championship. Well, maybe t- titles in <laughs> PWF were always dependent upon the house and always dependent uh, on like you always see back and forth. Like George was always the light heavyweight champion, and Stallion was always the heavyweight champion. And sometimes it'd be a situation like, oh, he lost it in Forest City, North Carolina last week when there yeah. was no show in Forest City last week. Uh, it was always dependent upon like, hey, do we need a title great. change tonight here? <laughs> Much like the EWA title is right now, which is still probably the most elusive career goal that I have. Uh-huh. Even though like George has like switched that belt to Jimmy Valiant without Jimmy Valiant ever wrestling a match, <laughs> like it's it, it's all dependent upon what you need that night. Like, do you need a title switch this night to really like pop the crowd? Right. But sometimes the title switch would ha- wouldn't even happen <laughs> just so the babyface could win at the end of the night because of whatever reason or we're trying to come back or we're trying to take an angle or whatever it is. A George South show is is always booked. 15 minutes before bell time and is usually written on the back of an envelope. <laughs> so they get some reps in in PWF. They learn. They they put together some matches and soon they leave the Carolinas, head over to Memphis and the USWA where they'd work with people like Jerry Lawler, the big boss man, Jeff Jarrett, and the Moondogs. USWA was, like I said, that next step 
past what like PWF, like PWF would have been like the first step in your professional wrestling career. USWA, you know, kind of a proper territory, yeah. uh, even though the money wasn't all that great because it was in Memphis and it was also on the downturn. But it, you're going to get a lot of reps and you're going to wrestle people, you know, like before you're wrestling George South and Italian Stallion. Now you're wrestling people like Jerry the King yeah. Lawler, Moondogs, people who have actually like drawn like big money, headlined some shows in, in New York and Memphis and, and places all across the country. So you're it's that next step in your evolution. And at this time, it was kind of like a developmental for WWF. It was like their feeder system. And WWF was willing to do what it could to help out USWA, whether give contracted wrestlers dates in memphis to help bring the houses up so that way the developing wrestlers there could wrestle in front of larger crowds and mm -hmm. also too like you would have people like bruce pritchard and other talent people down there scouting and saying oh this guy's got some potential this guy's got a good look this guy knows how to talk and then also too when they would sign somebody they'd send people down there like the rock mm -hmm. mabel said in a shoot interview that the harlem knights were like more than happy to reach the level of uswa like they thought they had made it but in just over a month, June of 93, Jerry Jarrett had arranged a WWF tryout for the Harlem Knights. And from there, they would be on their way to the World Wrestling Federation for over 50 years. I, I'm not going to finish it. Please. They did end up going to WWF, obviously. But there's also a story of them going to have a tryout match in WCW, <laughs> where I believe Mabel was the one who described the environment in the locker room as racist. Well... <laughs> Feeling the environment and actually what I've heard happened for him to say the environment uh, seems like he would have a better story because I, I have a story that I heard through George South because George South would take a lot of these guys as enhancement talent. They would do it for WWF at the time and also WCW. So they went to WCW and this was very, very early in their wrestling career. Like this is probably like probably sometime in 92. Like this is probably pretty shortly after George had met Mabel and Mo. Yeah. So they took him there and like I said this is through through George South. As soon <laughs> as soon as George brought in all the guys cuz it was always this thing like here's the guys that I have, who do you want to use, how you want to book it cuz they would just kind of look like as far as matchups and body types and everything else cuz obviously you don't want to put Mabel in there against Tom Zink. That's not going to make, you know, or maybe you do want to put him in there with Tom Zink if you want to give him a big win or make, you know, or you want to put him against Big Bubba Rogers or whoever you got on the roster at the time. And apparently when George was just presenting the guys that he had, Bill Watts walked up to George and was like, who are these N-words? Uh. Bill Watts said the N-word? Yeah, blatantly right to the guy's <laughs> face. So that's the environment he was feeling. Cause I yes. Guess, yeah. That's a, yeah, that was a very vague story <laughs> that, that Mabel presented when the story that I got from George South was very clear what was yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another point on the board for Mabel just being like a chill dude. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, no. He was not a chill dude. Uh, Rightfully yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah of Jesus. course. Rightfully so. And... I believe they did not work that day, as as from what I remember okay. the story, or they, or they did, or whatever it was, but it was a big scene, it was a situation. Because once you see somebody like Mabel, with his attitude and how he can move in the ring, that's immediate signing, yeah, yeah, immediately. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they went to WCW first before WWF. So, you know, why doesn't WCW sign him when, they, when you see him sight on scene? Well, that's why. And another wrestler pulled Mabel aside and was like, hey, 
you do realize he said that to your face just to test you. Because if Pretty you, aggressive. Which <laughs> Can I control this guy? Let's just bust that out. Thankfully, we don't live in that environment anymore. Yeah. There's one way to test somebody. Like, you don't have to, like, say the N-word to somebody to see if they're a cool person. Just call them stupid. <laughs> well, I, that, would, that would set me off. Stupid is, like, my N-word. Like, that's <laughs> the one that makes me see red. Like, if somebody called me stupid, like, so I, I get some of those emotions because I was I can, Jake's really getting upset I was just yeah, joking yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were just joking I'm already revved up but you can just say who are these motherfuckers yeah like that still raises their blood pressure pieces of to, shit to, to, any yeah, yeah, you, word you want to know you know what I'm saying like I you can have hate in your heart just don't be racist yeah you know, a, you know, like Bill Watts like why do you have to take it to such a racial tone that has a word that has such a dark history and he just pulled that out of him. And then why, why as wrestlers are we like, oh, that's just a test. Yeah. Like such shitty behavior. Yeah. And Even we're just supposed 90s. to glaze over it. And like, ah, oh, it's just the way it is. Especially for the coming of someone like Bill Watts. I just want to be sure. Are we sure that Bill Watts wasn't a ventriloquist dummy for Ole Anderson? <laughs> oh, that was the thing too. Ole probably came up and did the same exact thing. It was like, it, they probably sat in the back like, who's going to say the N-word to the podcast today? <laughs> yeah, Mabel's just like, you know that's not my name, right? Like, <laughs> So... But, like, another example of why WCW failed. You you don't hire this guy who's as big as he is, as agile he is, with an amazing attitude, and you're just like, now nah, let's go ahead and say a racial slur to his face and see if he's cool. Yeah. And then but, they probably got called sensitive yeah. bitches or something. Yeah. yeah. But, but just the fact that Mabel didn't – he had an opportunity to super bury Bill Watts on a shoot interview, and he was just like, the, the environment wasn't good. It's like Barry Horowitz being like, you know, 1940s Germany was not chill, bro. Like, like, yeah, and the, the, just the, the coolness of, yeah. uh, of Mabel, that he's not going to like bury Bill Watts like years later. And he's just like, all right, well, I'm going to push this aside. Like, and, and he shouldn't push that aside. He should, be, he should be shouting that off to the rooftops, what was done to him and exactly. how wrong it is. But he, he took the high road. So another reason, attitude, class. That's why this guy had a job forever. What's in the WWF? The Harlem Knights were given a brand new gimmick, Men on a Mission. Nelson became Mabel, Bobby became Moe, and they were given a rapping manager named Oscar. Who apparently got the job by busting a freestyle in an elevator to Vince. And Vince was like, that's really impressive or black or whatever Vince would say. <laughs> oh, this, this rap stuff's popular right now. I need this on my TV right now. I'm sure Vince asked him if he was easy and it got really weird. <laughs> well, that's the thing, too. Like, early 90s, like, anything that was slightly... <laughs> Rap, hip hop, like oh, let's put this on a TV yep. immediately. Yeah. I mean, we just want, we were just discussing Suburban Commando in a different podcast, and how do you start a movie off in 1991? You do a rap and you throw a Hulk Hogan <laughs> in it, so you're hip and you're cool and you're up with it. Just make some sort of rap. It doesn't have to be good, <laughs> but make sure you put the star in there. And guess what? Like you, Hulk Hogan, you don't have to sing. You just say words because that's all rap is. <laughs> like that's how the perception of like white people's uh, idea of what rap is was like. Oh, you just just say words with music over top of it and you do it with black people that's how you do it right like that's all people knew about rap and hip-hop in the early 90s men on a mission would get pushed as mega baby faces they were introduced through a series of vignettes portraying them as three african-american men trying to make a positive change in the inner city neighborhoods or as vince mcmahon called them comedy sketches <laughs> 
when I first saw them, when I was flipping through the station and saw a WWF superstars match with them, my first impressions of them on TV as being like this young white kid from Iowa, I was like, this is the coolest thing. Because first of all, he's huge. He's African-American. They're a tag team. They're, they're rapping. They got the whoop, there it is thing going. And it's it's like everything that I think is the coolest thing ever at my young age. It's, it's like it's something I've never seen before. I'm yeah. like, this is awesome. I want to know more about these guys. So I, I remember that distinct moment being at my old house before my parents like built the new house that they live in. I remember watching that. I remember, I think it was like, Sunday afternoon like I, I remember it's a very vivid memory in my life is the first time seeing Mabel and this is probably going to go horribly but one of the vignettes has Oscar singing a rap and I wrote down all the lyrics and I'm going to sing it right now Nick bust the bust the beat boom boom okay that's decent stop now um M to the M to the M to the O. Got my boy and his name is Mo. Mo is fast and he is not slow. His name's Mo. His name's not Joe. He kicks butt with no delay. There's not a wrestler he can't slay. Slam him, bang him, then he pin him. Pick them up and then he'll skin him. Come on, Nick, get in there. What? Is, what what's your SoundCloud name, bro? <laughs> We're on a mission. Then five times in a row. This is, this is back when rap was innocent. Back when they were like, I like pancakes and I like syrup. Let's be friends with these white dudes from Europe. Oh, boom, 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 boom. Was right. that a freestyle? Yeah, it was. Wow. I did it. I, I crushed that shit. <laughs> All right. Uh, Men on a Mission would debut on an episode of WWF Superstars, airing on July 10th, 1993, facing Chad Miller and Mitch Bishop. You, you know those guys, Jake? Nope. Right. I'm sure George does. <laughs> They'd be led to the ring by rapping Oscar, who had so many uncaring hands in the air, and the 6'10", 530-pound Mabel hits a drop kick, a spinning hill kick, and a second rope diving leg drop, and Chadwick and Mitchell first to fall to Men on a Mission. Oh, that spinning heel kick that Mabel had. Oh, man, it was... He, <laughs> he was fucking great at that. I don't know how it felt to take that. It didn't look good. If I see footage of George South taking that, I know it was safe. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if I look back at the annals and I've never seen George take that except for once, I know it's the stiffest shit I've ever seen before. You do before the detective life. work there and you're like, that, that was not good. That was, that was not good. <laughs> if George only took it once ever, then that was awful. Like, But if he took it multiple times, it was the safest thing ever. But I just remember seeing him do that. Like You talk about like the drop kick and the second rope leg drop, but to me, that's, that spin kick, that was the most impressive thing he did. You get a guy with a good attitude, positive outlook on life, and you do a spin heel kick like that with that size, sign him forever. Dollar signs, baby. After their debut, their push was pretty much on. They'd hop on the house show loop, they'd work against enhancement talent on superstars and raw, and they'd have their first big pay-per-view match as part of 1993's Survivor Series. We touched on this match on either Bam Bam or, or Luna, I can't remember, but this match is the stuff of nightmares. Bam Bam Bigelow, Bastion Booger, and the Head Shrinkers taking on four doinks, men on a mission, and the Bushwhackers in clown makeup. I wrote down all my notes as I watched it, and I just want to... I'm not going to try to just talk about it. I'm just going to read my notes. <laughs> Wrestling Observer's worst work match of the year. The fuck it is, is objectively <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is all art awful. is subjective, but I will put an asterisk on what Nick said. 
Mo eliminates one of the head shrinkers with a balloon that explodes with what I can only assume is sulfuric acid that scars his face and allows Luke Doink to get the pin. Booger rubs a banana on his head for some reason, then misses a tea ba- his teabag finisher, and Mabel, the illegal man, gets the pin after a leg drop. <laughs> Batu assaults Doink Luke with a turkey carcass. Mo rides a scooter around inside the ring while Fatu fights Luke Doink, then Bam Bam drop kicks him off the scooter and violently throws the scooter to the outside. Butch Doink fakes that there's something actually in a bucket. Fatu reacts and slips on a banana peel. <laughs> That's a how fucking real they did the actual <laughs> bit that is older than all of us plus a billion years. The good thing is, in the slow-mo replay after the match, you can see Fatu look backwards towards the banana and like, all right, I got to step right there. Bam Bam gets pinned after a Mabel splash, which for him was huge. He said Bam Bam on the shoot interviews, best guy I ever worked with. So it was an, a true honor to get the pin over him in a Survivor Series. Taught him a bunch. And then the closing, I love it, Bobby Heenan. There's confetti in the ring. There's a banana in the ring. There's drumsticks. There's a wing. There's a gizzard. I feel like I'm at Dahmer's house. It's oh. like, God damn. <laughs> Bobby Heenan bringing out just the cannibalistic serial killer jokes is another reason why he's a great man. Maybe you'll know what this meant. Heenan, after the match, says, this looks like a match Chief J. Strombos should have been in. Any clue what he would mean by that? Oh, just Bobby Heenan, just Baron Chief. Uh, (laughs) Probably just a pop chief in the backstage. uh, They probably uh, knew he was on headset or just like, like, it's like when I say stuff like, ah, like this guy's about as pretty as Caleb Connolly. When he's like, like teeth are all messed up or or just whatever. It's the inside jokes when people are listening to this, they're like, yeah, yeah, fucking do something we all get. <laughs> just just to pop the boys yeah. in the back. It, it meant nothing other than just to pop the boys okay. in the back, which almost entertained himself after seeing something like that where he's like, this is not good. And it, I feel bad for Mabel and Men on a Mission because they were so hot at this time. And you can see it oh, in the match before it starts. Like, they're, they're with Men on a the Mission. Yeah. is bonkers. They were over, over. as fuck. Yeah. And then by the end of this, they're like, that's it. Yeah, right. Yeah. A, a very typical WWE booking. And, like, we have this guy who could be a monster. And granted, they were known as a monster factory getting people ready for Hogan. Yeah. But then there was a time where they're like, we should take every monster and <laughs> give them a comedy shtick. <laughs> I blame Chris Farley getting successful around this time. <laughs> That's the only thing. At least that would track. Because there is un unexplicably out of nowhere they take all these guys that could be monsters and like imagine the the interaction with bam bam versus mabel facing off and just going at it like how cool that would be yeah, and then you totally. you tag bam bam up with somebody and then you have like a tag and you got like a real badass tag here but we do this to cover up for the fact that doink got in trouble and we got to save the match that was advertised Ooh. and it's just like I mean, I get what we're doing this, but we missed a golden opportunity to just kind of get a really cool matchup right here. And just, I feel like this almost hurts men on a mission's credibility going forward. Yeah. If you see the way totally. things kind of happen and trickle out the way they do. They're dressed up like actual fucking clowns. That's what <laughs> I was watching. I was like, not really? Shit. I, I think I think hindsight 2020, and you zoom out and you see this, and I'm like, yep, that was a mistake. <laughs> yep. So in the moment, you're not thinking of what the long-term effect is going to be on this match. You're like, oh, this is funny, clowns, uh, and, and just kind of a passing-by thing. And you don't realize that when you're running, you know, was it four pay-per-views of the time, that, you know, these pay-per-views meant something. And what you did on these kind of resonated in people's minds 
for long periods of time. Like I feel like the stink of this match kind of hung over Mabel and Moe's head for a while. Yeah, totally. So Mabel would also be part of the 1994 Royal Rumble, entering at number 16. He'd last about 10 minutes. He'd help eliminate Diesel, which is a uh, little foreshadowing. Uh, he helped them with a team of people. I guess that's kind of like getting half a sack in football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got an eighth of an elimination. <laughs> to bring, like what Jake said, to try to build him up and get him over with the crowd as this monster. And he's in the Royal Rumble, which you would assume big, huge dude debut in the Royal Rumble. He's going to come in and immediately eliminate two or three guys. And he gets an eighth of an elimination. <laughs> that's that's it. To eliminate Mabel, it would take a team of Bam Bam Bigelow, Crush, Great Kabuki, Greg Valentine, Shawn Michaels, Tatanka, and Sparky Plug to get the big man over the top rope. Mabel would make his WrestleMania debut at WrestleMania 10 as Men on a Mission got a title shot at the WWF Tag Team Champions, the Quebecers. They won the match, but not the title as it was a countout. And the ref really gives away the count. Refs always give away the countouts when they're like, one, two, three, four, <laughs> five. When normally two dudes are fighting up the ramp and they're like, one, one and a half. Cigarette break. Yeah. <laughs> And if I'm not mistaken, this was one of the matches that ran long oh, on WrestleMania okay. 10. Like, people want to put a lot of heat on the ladder match, but this match also went heavy. Yeah. Also, Brett at Owen went heavy as well that night, but this was one of the matches I believe Bruce Prichard talked about, like, going, guys, you got to cut it short. And they did all of their time and then some. Uh. And then immediately when they came back, the Quebecers were arguing. And I think even Men in a Mission argued, like, no, 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 we did our time. And Bruce is like, no, look at the goddamn clock. You went <laughs> over. You went heavy and just freaking out. And that's why he had, to, you know, this was helped contribute to cutting out that 10 man. So part of the heat goes on the ladder match and for whatever reason brett and owens match avoided the heat because it was so good and then the latter match kind of avoided the heat because it was so good yeah. but then this match goes over <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so imagine a lot more i imagine some of that heat got dumped on there because like you could say like well at least the latter match was good yeah. at least yeah, brett yeah, yeah. and owens one of the best wrestlemania matches of all time definitely the best opening match of all time but this fucking match went over fuck all four yeah, of you exactly. guys so it that was probably, a star and a half we need at least three to not be pissed off at you yeah so on uh, March 29th, 1994, Men on a Mission would be part of one of those quick overseas title changes when they won the tag team titles at a house show in London, England, just to lose them back to the Quebecers a couple days later in Sheffield, England. And this would be the only time Men on a Mission would win the tag team titles. They were told, it's like, oh, you get to win the belts, but don't get excited because, yeah, three days later. Not long after this, Mabel would begin a run as a singles competitor. He qualified for 94's King of the Ring on a Superstars taping, beating Pierre the Quebecers, which is not just one of his first singles matches with WWF. This is one of his first singles matches ever. Wow. Leading up to 94 King of the Ring, Mabel would keep squashing guys on Superstars and would work a bunch of house show matches with Yokozuna and Bam Bam Bigelow. A lot of these TV and house show matches are four, five, six minutes long because Mabel flat out did not have the cardio to go much longer, and he was so used to splitting the time with Mo. Good point, Nick. I actually didn't think of that. Don't you belittle me, you fuck. Every time I try to compliment people, it feels like I'd be an <laughs> asshole, and I really got to fix that in myself. Is that something you don't, you don't think about 
a lot is like when you split the time in a, in a tag match. That, that's something that gets brought up with Billy Gunn. Like you, you look at Billy Gunn and ten year has like, why didn't he have a good singles run? Well, mm. come to find out years later, he like he had really bad asthma. So him going oh, longer matches in a singles match was a little bit rougher on him. But in a tag, incredible, fantastic, untouchable. Probably the best guy to ever do a hot tag. I would say, wow, even <laughs> even more than Robert Gibson. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I think Billy Gunn is the best hot tag guy ever. Wow. And, you know, you're always like, why couldn't something like that have single success? But it's because of you could split the time, you know, especially when you had the, the inability of, of, of breathing properly, which obviously with Mabel, as far as his cardio is go. And, and you think about the schedule. It's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, too, is these guys are wrestling three or four times a week. And I, and I am always concerned about keeping in shape as I am. And sometimes I'm wrestling maybe a dozen times a month at, at best. And I was thinking about like, man, if I was on a WWE schedule and I'd rest three times a week, when there's certain months where I'm only wrestling four or five times a month just because of bookings and having to balance a stand-up comedy career and a podcasting career and, you know, thinking about wrestling that much in that many days, you're like, wow, okay, I see why there's a different shape and you have to be in so much, it's such an incredible shape to do that and build up to it. And then when you're as big as you are with the travel you are like that weighs on you a lot. So that's why it's far more physically demanding to do that schedule. And then of course, when you're doing sync, when before you're doing split in time and now you're doing singles and then you got travel and then you're in charge of doing the same amount of time, but before, but now you're doubling your workload and then you're doing all this travel. It's, it's much tougher. There's gotta be a different kind of a skill set or a way to approach the art form too. When you're doing tag versus singles too. Yeah, because uh, you could just think about like, okay, well, I'm the obviously the hot tag guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all you have to worry about if you're Mo is, oh, I have to sell a little bit. Yeah. And then the only thing you have to know as, as Mabel is like, all right, when I come in, this is my comeback. Yeah. And I'm going to do these moves, and then this happens. And then also, too, this is still the era of job guy matches. So you got a lot more of those matches when, when you're wrestling on TV. We're now on TV. You got 80 minutes, and it's a competitive match, yep. bell to bell. So that's why the guys that are doing it today are the best that have ever done it before every year the the in-ring product has always gotten better and the quality of athlete that you see on tv right now is the best there's ever been Hmm. at 94's king of the ring mabel danced himself down to the ring to face irs and mabel said that once he started adding dancing to the intro game over massively over as a face (laughs) this is a really fun match art donovan's commentary is some of the weirdest stupidest (laughs) shit i've ever heard so yeah look that up i thought it was a good match too Eventually, Mabel goes for a second rope splash, and Erwin R. Scheister shakes the rope, <laughs> causing him to fall, pins Mabel, eliminating him from the king of the ring. They keep Mabel as a singles guy, leading up to his next couple of pay-per-view matches. At, at 94 SummerSlam, Mabel would face Jeff Jarrett in a rap versus country match. Yeah. During this match, they use a formula I see a lot with big guys versus little guys where the monster kind of like post up in the middle of the ring and the little guy's like swinging off him. He's running the ropes. Is that a go-to thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just bounce off him. You just have him stay still and I'll I'll come to you. Yeah. I mean, that. I mean, that's kind of what it should be good guy, bad guy thing. Like, yeah. I always make that very clear in the end of the match. The good guy making a comeback, he needs to plant his feet like Avengers 
where they all circle up and <laughs> the robots from Age of Ultron just shoot right at you. And Black Widow has her one gun, so she's ready to fucking yeah, go. Yeah, so everybody just feeds to you. That's what. That's the formula. You plant your feet and you stay in the middle ring. When The Rock, when he make that comeback, all I had to do was just shuffle to the side and look for that next person to hit. Yeah. You shouldn't have to go anywhere. And then even more so when you're a bigger guy, because there has to be some sort of movement. When it's big guy, big guy, there's not a lot of movement, and then it becomes a little lethargic. But if you have a big guy, if you have two big guys that can kind of move and you see the move, then that's impressive. Yeah. But ideally, somebody has to do a lot of moving. And if the big guy is obviously getting very winded very fast because he uses wrestling tags, then you need that smaller heel to bounce around as much as possible and overly sell huh, okay. to get him over. And the more you overly sell, the bigger he looks. People right. did it with Andre for years. You look at Ric Flair wrestling any giant whatsoever. That that's just how it's done. Double J wins this match when Mabel misses a big sit down splash and Jeff pins him for the one two three. Mabel would be back at ninety four Survivor Series facing the million dollar team of Tatanka, Bam Bam, King Kong, Bundy, and the Heavenly Bodies with his team of Lex Luger, the Smoking Guns, and Adam Bomb. And Mabel eliminates Tom Pritchards with a flying cross body off the second rope. He has a showdown with King Kong, Bundy which the crowd super pops for to uh, speak on your point with Bam Bam. And he even makes King Kong Bundy take a bump and no one makes Bundy bump his own bumps. <laughs> Abel would be eliminated by count out after he and Bam Bam go over the top rope on a double clothesline thing that looked dangerous as fuck. I don't uh, think it was playing because they're just kind of <laughs> like, oh, uh, but Mabel's gone. Bam Bam gets in. Mabel doesn't. Mabel's team would go on to lose as Bundy would pin Lex Luger. That's nuts well we're getting bundy ready for the undertaker uh is that a wrestlemania match yeah yeah by the start of 95 mabel and mo would be reunited and men on the mission would turn hill on an episode of wwf action zone that aired march 12th of 95 men on a mission lost a match against reigning tag team champions the smoking guns and an angry mabel and mo attacked them after the match <laughs> The next week, Oscar would try to apologize to the smoking guns on behalf of Men on a Mission, which led to Mo and Mabel attacking Oscar, putting him off TV forever. Kayfabe wives, they killed a guy. This would be Oscar's exit from the pro wrestling business. Well, Oscar had claimed that he was their not just manager on TV, but also their manager behind the scenes. And wanted a cut of their money. Mm. So, like, that was a big dispute. Like, obviously, WWF, WWE at this time is trying to cut costs and trying to bring around a manager was extra, an extra plane ticket, extra trans, extra room, all those things, all extra expenses. Like, like, can we just drop the manager thing? And they're like, yeah, about that. Uh, It's one of those things that happens a lot where. Some people try and do it all the time, even now, and it's so fucking dumb. Where they're like, you see a guy at wrestling school that's got some ability, and these guys will sign him up. Like, hey, I'll be your real life manager. I'll help you get bookings, but just make sure I get a cut. You see it sometimes in like music, in, you know, sometimes in comedy and stuff like that. Like somebody will try and take somebody with talent and get them to sign a piece of paper that somehow magically holds up in court later. And just trying to exploit them. And from what I understand, Oscar was one of those guys that saw the potential in these guys, latched onto their potential, and basically signed over them. And I think they were trying to 
like the WWF was trying to get involved and get Oscar away from them and get Oscar away from stealing these guys' money. I think the kind of end of this was like, oh, we finally got this solved. Let's get rid of them. (laughs) And Oscar probably thought he was going to have this big baby face come back, and it never came. He's like, no, 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 we're done with you. (laughs) Goodbye. But according to Oscar, he he had to be a bad guy, and he wanted to present a nice positive image to the kids, and he just wasn't standing for that. No. Yeah. At the first ever In Your House, May 14th, 1995, the New Hill Mabel was accompanied by manager Moe, and he would squash Adam Baum in less than two minutes to again qualify for the King of the Ring, and this is where business picks up for Mabel. Mabel would roll into King of the Ring 95, facing The Undertaker in the first round, Purple Gloves and Purple Boots Undertaker, a.k.a. The Best Undertaker. 95 King of the Ring is widely regarded as one of, if not the worst pay-per-views of all time. In fact, at the time, it had the lowest buy rate ever at 150,000 buys. It held on to that title for about a decade. Everyone hates this match between Mabel and Taker, but I thought it was solid. Like Undertaker got the best out of Mabel at this point, which still wasn't amazing. (laughs) Well, I vividly remember this King of the Ring. You were one of the 150? <laughs> no, 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 I was not. Oh. <laughs> but that's the interesting part of the story. Because my my fandom started very young in my life, and then wrestling became more of a cable thing, and then we didn't have cable in the middle of nowhere, and then the rise of DirecTV happened. We got DirecTV at the very end of 94, and then I rediscovered pro wrestling in the very beginning, like probably like January of 95, when I saw a match between Jeff Jarrett and Bret Hart where William Shatner was involved. Um, and, then I'm like, and then I'm like, oh gosh, I remember Bret Hart. Oh shit, there's William Shatner. Like, like I was like, I remember wrestling and wrestling was a lot of fun. And so I started watching wrestling again. And also too, is during that push of WrestleMania 11 with Lawrence Taylor, Bam Bam Bigelow. Yeah. So there's a lot of mainstream. So it was like pointing me back towards professional wrestling and obviously like I remember Bret Hart and I remember Shawn Michaels when I used to watch it and I was really liking Bret Hart when I stopped watching it now Bret's like on top here or at least at the top of his game and so I was seeing really great matches on TV on the action zone and then I saw like men on a mission like oh these guys are awesome and I really got into Razor Ramon and really was digging everything and that's also the time that they started doing the In Your House pay-per-views which were 1495 so as a 13 year old kid yes a 13 year old 13 year old kid you mow a lawn you're good yes i mow a lawn (laughs) i'm i'm solid i'm gonna get this pay-per-view i remember my mom complaining about the first in your house taking place on mother's day i have to rush home on my mother's day for you to watch wrestling and i was like yeah this is going to be a part of my life for the next 20 years. All right. You rekindled your love of wrestling by starting immediately with pushing loved ones to the side. Yes, exactly. And, and, now, and now you wonder why, like, I mean, like, when my grandmother passed away, I'm like, yeah, okay, grandma, I'll head back home for your funeral, but I got to take care of my bookings first. But the in your house is very easily to take care of. And then, of course, King of the Ring pay-per-views were like $34. Ooh. And I'm like, I... Not and I, I'll never forget watching the freebie channel, and and just being so tempted like mm, this is this is two lawns I have to mow. <laughs> and keep in mind I live in the country, so my my yard was like Big. three acres. So. <laughs> you had to mow a football field. Yeah, I had to mow like basically three football fields if I wanted that thirty five dollars <laughs> for. 
this pay-per-view and I'm like mm, uh, I don't know and I, I just watched the free and I just remember holding oh, that button like, on the direct TV okay, and whether yes. should, or oh, should geez, I it's so easy all I have to do is do one button and then and I, I get all I, this joy I think they made the announcement that Razor Ramon was not going to be on the pay- in the King <laughs> of the Ring and I'm like yeah I'm out <laughs> even though I ju- they just introduced Savio Vega and they said Savio was going to take his place and Savio won the qualifying match yeah. to get in and I, that made me super oh man Savio's in it I really dig Savio Vega and, and I was really was his manager and, and, and it was kind of like, uh, but, it's like but if it's definitely Razor Ramon I'd definitely be in and then it got to the time like no I'm not going to do it <laughs> and then I'll never forget the next day watching the next Raw I'm like man I wonder who won King of the Ring because this is be- this is pre-internet this is pre-Twitter. Right. Yep, yep. This is pre-everything. I'm not going to find out who won the King of the Ring till the next day on Raw. True fucking suspense. Suspense. <laughs> and and I just, I was like, who won the King of the Ring? Who won the King of the Ring? And I was like going through the brackets. Like, man, I feel like it's got to be Undertaker. Oh, man. Uh, maybe they put Savio or like Savio. Shawn, Shawn Michaels is in the Yeah, Shawn Michaels in the fucking thing. Shawn Michaels, because Shawn Michaels cut this really great promo in the free-for-all. And I was super fucking excited. And then I'll never get fucking showed it up. And it was a picture of fucking King Mabel. <laughs> First, it was a still from what? the pay-per-view, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and like, I liked Mabel. I liked Men on the Mission. I dug them, but when I saw that, I'm like, what the fuck is this? King, King was like, Mabel? Was I was perplexed. <laughs> like, I, like, fucking shocked. I'm trying to think of a time that I was more shocked that they 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 did anything. Like, that was, like... Mabel being crowned the king of king of the ring and seeing that still pop up on Monday Night Raw in the first second, I don't know if I've ever been more shocked in professional wrestling than in that moment during my entire fandom. So for you, it was Mabel winning King of the Ring. For me, it was when Benoit died. So those are equated. In us. <laughs> no, I kind of saw that one coming. Like, <laughs> but when it popped up on screen, there. Oh fuck! Starting the next night on Raw, Mabel would start getting carried out on a litter. Famously, the Hardy Boys would be some of the wrestlers that carried him. And we wonder why Matt has the back problems he does today. (laughs) So King Mabel tagging up with Sir Moe would spend the summer working with Razor Ramon and Savio Vega. And the feud would end at In Your House 2 in Nashville, Tennessee with King Mabel and Sir Moe getting the win. Also, as part of In Your House 2, Mabel would be part of a lumberjack match for the Sid versus Diesel main event. And during the match, he'd have a couple of highlighted beatdowns of Diesel, thus starting their feud together. Leading up to SummerSlam, King Mabel would cut promos on Nash, interfere in his matches, and since we all know how much British people love crowns, Mabel would even get Davy Boy Smith to turn hill and attack Diesel. Oh, I remember that happening live, too. That That was good. That was fucking (laughs) shocking. Because, like, Lex Luger just left... I always like Davy Boy. I actually, I really like the Allied Powers. Yeah, it too, actually. I really like them, and I'm just really surprised yeah, that they never good. got a good run. And when they had that match where they looked like they, they might have beat Yoko, Zuna, and Owen Hart, I'm like, I was into it. <laughs> and then Lex Luger's gone. I'm like, ah, shit, what are they going to do with Davy? And then when Davy turned heel, I was like, <gasps> like that. I mean, Heart crushed. I mean, we're right now in the wheelhouse of my fandom as a child. <laughs> like, the, like the, these moments in 1995, people pan, but these are the things that got me nope. in and you wonder why I wrestle with the Boy Scout outfit <laughs> <laughs> when I'm like oh my god the goon yes Jean-Pierre Lafitte fuck yeah like, 
I think what makes the Davy Boy Smith turn so good is it doesn't make any fucking sense <laughs> at all. It's just he just turns bad because he was babyface of babyface. No, no, like no. He was like, well, is there a- part of the reason why I think that turn works so well is the camera shot? Oh yeah, ooh, because you just see Diesel facing in front of Mabel, and then out of fucking nowhere. Davy Boy appears in the frame and clotheslines Diesel from behind, uh, which is something that I do when I edit shows, probably because of this particular moment. Movie magic. Yeah, and like if you're if you're like it's a three way or a tag match, I try to when I film and definitely as edit is get that shot of the person going for the pin and making sure I don't see the other person who's going to come in and break, yeah, yeah. cut it off. Kidding. But since I'm a pro wrestler, I know when these things are going to happen or I can anticipate them ahead of time. Like, okay, I have to make sure this person is completely out of the shot so that way they're going one, two, and then out of nowhere Boom. you see the person break it up. So I always make sure that I get that cut and when I'm when I'm shooting, I see that person out of the corner of my eye to make sure they're out of the frame so that way you see them appear in the frame at the last second to add some drama to the match I'm editing and filming. As just a movie nerd, you saying that in the way wrestling is edited, I just I'm seriously clapping for you because <laughs> I fucking mean it. So at 1995 SummerSlam, King Mabel would get a shot at Diesel's WWF title. So the recap, Mabel was main eventing one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year, getting a shot at the title. He had a pin over Undertaker, a tag team title win, King of the Ring. This is the peak of Mabel's career. But at SummerSlam, Mabel was about to run into the click. So obviously, his push would come to a screeching halt. And the next 10 minutes is Jake defending the click. Go. <laughs> I, I, you read my mind. You read my mind. That was, a, that was an opportune time to jump right in, Micah, before I start talking because I, I was. Knew it was coming. I knew I had to come. No, 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 I'll show you. I'll, I will defend the click. Oh, I'm all oh. by myself now? Yes, yeah. you are. Because. You got clicked up on, son. Oh, fuck. I'll tell you why this makes sense. Mabel, at this point, was getting a reputation for hurting people in the ring. Your boy, Kevin Nash, said at this point, Mabel had probably already hurt between six and eight people in the ring. Now, if you wrestle long enough, you're probably going to get hurt. You're probably going to hurt someone else. But Mabel hurt Fatu. You, it's backed up by science that you cannot hurt Samoan people. You have to attack them emotionally. So for the SummerSlam match, Diesel asked Mabel, please don't do your set down splash on my back. But Mabel... Did it anyways, and he hurt Kevin Nash. And if you listen closely, oh. Oh. you can hear Kevin Nash go, God damn it, Mabel! Fuck! <laughs> it's so amazing. I rewatched it like two or three times just for that. Diesel still was a champion. He finished the match having trouble standing up after a 500-pounder squashed his lumbar. He ends up winning the match, second rope clothesline, keeping his title. Backstage, Mabel was almost fired on the spot by Vince for injuring Kevin. Even though Kevin Nash was super pissed, he apparently told Vince that wasn't necessary. But either way, Mabel's days in WWF were numbered. I remember Kevin Nash always talking about his frustration wrestling Mabel. But also, too, I see where he's coming from. Also, too, during Diesel's title run, I think he had to have elbow surgery Mm -hmm. around the time he was feuding with Sid. So already he's, he's... Basically, the guy at the top of the heap, he's got the belt. He's trying to defend the belt as much as he can. Houses are down. People are pointing a lot of fingers Mm -hmm. at him. He's getting hurt in the middle of it. And and now you're going to put me in the ring with a guy who's already (laughs) hurt so many people. Like, I know that feeling. Like, as a guy that usually... 
is told like, hey, this guy doesn't know a whole lot and he's hurt a lot of people. Put him in there with Man Scout. He'll make him look good and he'll get a good match out of him. And then I'm like, well, fuck, man. I'm just trying to fucking survive myself. I'm out here wrestling on one leg and half a brain. And you put me in here with this fucking killer? Can and you name names? Can, we, can I get some names? The li- You mean list people? Because fucking it is long, my friend. Can I get one? Uh, some of them are nameless because they've all quit the business <laughs> and they were all and I was all asked to do a job for them because hey this guy's got a bright future ahead no he doesn't I lasted longer than he did in fact I had twice I had double the career that that fucking guy did that you made me fucking put over who was murdering people who almost fucking killed me so back to Kevin Nash <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen we'll be right back <laughs> I have a vivid memory about my boy Kevin Nash He's my boy. I love Kevin Nash. I I love everything about him. Just the coolest fucking dude. He was ever. great in John Wick. Dude, <laughs> like he's he's fucking great in real life. Like he's yeah. fucking the coolest. And I remember this particular time. And like I said, as turbulent as his title run was and defending it, and then knowing that Sean's nipping at his fucking he was yeah. like his best fucking friend. The guy he shares a fucking rental car with is like looking over at him like, I'm gonna take that from you, motherfucker. <laughs> and then you got Bret Hart fucking trying to take it from you. You're getting injured, you're wrestling guys like Mabel. Because obviously when he wrestles Brett, it's fantastic. But you're yeah. not putting me in there with Brett. You're putting me in there with fucking Mabel. You're putting me in there with Sid. And that's what I got to do for a fucking title run. So the promo that Kevin Nash cuts for this SummerSlam match sold me on SummerSlam. Like I like I was definitely going to get SummerSlam 95 because of the rematch of the ladder match. But the fucking promo that Kevin Nash cuts, expert class. Easily thirty four ninety five, no question. Yes, <laughs> because I will never forget Kevin Nash said. He goes, he's talking about Mabel. You're a big boy. Maybe I can get you up for the jackknife, or maybe I can't. We'll have to see. And I'm like, I gotta find out if fucking he power bombs Mabel. Like I was like, oh shit. He may try and fucking power bomb. <laughs> your mind goes crazy with the visuals of what that would. The possibility, but that's but it is the reason why it's an expert class is because yeah. the possibility. Yeah, 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 yeah. The possibility of the impossible, and you put it out there as it could be possible. I mean, sold ticket. It's, it's right so there. simple, but it's so fucking effective. If it was within driving, if he was in Chicago, <laughs> I would have begged my parents to drive me to Chicago to see the fucking match. I was going to buy it on pay per view anyways, yeah. but if I knew it was within driving distance. I would have fucking been there <laughs> solely because of fucking Kevin Nash's promo. After SummerSlam, Mabel is pulled from the main event scene, but they give him another chance as he'd start working with The Undertaker. But during a house show, Mabel botched a clothesline, hitting Taker with his fist, legit fracturing Undertaker's orbital bone, putting out one of WWF's biggest draws in 1995 when they needed every viewer they could get. On TV, they wrote off Taker on November 9th's Raw, having Mabel and his new pal, Yokozuna, beat him down. And I can't believe they didn't fire him after this, but Mabel did admit that in his younger years, he should have been better at protecting guys. And eventually he would learn to, because from this point on, you don't hear anything about him like hurting anyone. Now, the one thing that I give lots of respect to Mabel on his shoot interviews is he admits everything. He not once tries to blame anybody else. He was green. He should have been better. He he doesn't want to like focus on it, and he tries to skirt away from the questions. But uh, he's just like, yeah, I I, I fucked up. Storyline wise, they had Yokozuna and Mabel drop legs on Taker's face and say they broke his face. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. 
after he already had a broken face. Too, <laughs> 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 what I was doing is like, can I look at the dates? So was he seriously like, please God, don't do it worse? And you wonder why <laughs> Undertaker is not held in such a high fucking yeah, regard right, in, yeah. in in WWE. Yeah. You fucking wonder why, like, uh, why are they always give you his taker? Why is they always go? Why are they always fucking book him even when it? Like, no, because a shit like this, yeah. you have a broken fucking face, and you tell Yokozuna and Mabel, the guy who hurt you, yeah, drop the fucking <laughs> your weight on me. Almost put your put your ass as close to my head as possible, and then drop down on me, knowing that you're already clumsy as it is, but also possibly smushing my face more so than before. That's why The Undertaker is the fucking Undertaker. This is turning into an episode we put everybody over. I know, this is very positive. That touched Mabel. (laughs) (laughs) So a fan of the opera style masked Undertaker would be back in the ring with Mabel at 95 Survivor Series. Taker would be doing his best Detroit Pistons Rip Hamilton impression. Leading the team of the dark side of him fought to Henry Godwin Savio Vega against the Royals, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Isaac Yakum, Jerry Lawler, and King Mabel. When I was watching this, just the team of Undertaker, Fatu, Savio Vega, and Henry O'Godwin <laughs> threw me off. So uh, I wrote my own fantasy five-on-five random bullshit. All right, this is the GOATs. Uh, we got Dory Funk Jr., Giant Gonzalez, Leatherface from mid-90s FMW, Jay Leno and Robbie Rage of WCW Tag Team High Voltage. They are going up against Team Domination. Ultimate Warrior, L. Dandy, Brian Pillman carrying a gun, fully <laughs> healed mass transit, and Marty Jannetty, but not normal rockers Marty Jannetty, weird Facebook post Marty Jannetty about possibly fucking the person he once thought was his daughter. So, in this match, Taker would get tagged in, and he just mows down everybody with tombstones and choke slams, leaving no one but Mabel. Mabel gets in, belly to belly's Taker, who does his no-sell setup. Mabel sees this, rolls out of the ring, runs to the back, losing by count-out. Mabel would have to face Undertaker again the next month at In Your House 5, Seasons Beatings, in a casket match. And Taker gets what I'd say super easy, quick win when he puts Moe and Mabel in the casket. To uh, cap off Mabel's probably deserved burial... Diesel would beat Mabel in eight seconds on the first Monday Night Raw of 1996, and then at the 96 Royal Rumble, Mabel would be the third man tossed out, eliminated by the mighty Yokozuna. Not long after the Royal Rumble, Moe and Mabel would be released from the WWF. From there, Mabel went to Puerto Rico to World Wrestling Council, where you do not take a shower. There, he traded their heavyweight title with Carlos Colon, and Mabel has the usual story of dodging rocks and bottles and batteries from the fans, which made me think of people paid a lot of money to set in the like first couple rows for those matches. There were probably a lot of like batteries that didn't quite make it to the ring. That sucks, man. Because like, a lot of kids don't have the best of arms. Yeah, they can't get the best of tickets. So they're chucking people in the eighth row in the back of the head. Yeah, I'll pay $400 for a front row at Raw, and I get hit in the back of the head with a rock. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot somebody. So Mo and Mabel went back to Memphis in the USWA, and I think he really needed this. Like He needed this lower pressure work, this extra training. He won the USWA heavyweight title in March of 96 before dropping it back off to Lawler in May. Mabel went to Memphis with Mo, but soon they would be split up in kayfabe and in reality. Because it was around this time that Mabel and Robert Horn would start having some disagreements and their relationship would crumble. 
And Mabel Shoot, he said he lost one of his best friends, and he got, like, emotional about it if you watch it. Mabel said Mo was jealous of his big singles push, his King of the Ring win, and his big old dick. <laughs> Jake just bowed his head on that. <laughs> on July 6, 1998, Mabel would make a one-night-only special return to the WWF to get beat up by their new King of the Ring, Ken Shamrock. On November 1st of 98, Mabel did a one-nighter for ECW November to Remember as a full-blooded Italian <laughs> with a fellow member, Ulf Herman. They attacked Tommy Rogers and Chris Shetty after Tommy beat Tracy Smothers, and they'd beat him down until the giant-killing Spike Dugley makes the save, asset-dropping him and pinning him and Ulf for the win. Goddamn right. I remember that vividly. Not as much as Jake remembers all his stuff, but oh, that was a good early memory. Mabel said it was a decent payday, which would make Mabel the first person in pro wrestling history to receive a check from Paul Heyman that did not bounce. Bam! Well, when you had guys that were just kind of trapped there and had to be there every single week, but the one-nighter guys, <laughs> you, you pay them before, you get, before they go to the ring, and then they're out, so... By January of 99, Mabel was back in the WWF as part of the Royal Rumble. So Mosh of the Headbangers was supposed to enter at number 11, but Mabel beat him up and took his spot. That's kind of how we discovered America, if you think about it. <laughs> Mabel gets in, he starts tossing people over the top, and all, I think he eliminated five people. Then, the Undertaker's music hits. The lights cut off. When they turn back on, Minion, Farouk, and Bradshaw have beat Mabel out of the ring, they beat him up towards the entrance where he was met by Ministry of Darkness Undertaker, the second best Undertaker. Where, where do you put Biker Undertaker? Last of all things. <laughs> Mabel would get pushed to the back, and that would be the last time we'd ever see Mabel. Then Vince McMahon won the Royal Rumble, yada yada. <laughs> Mabel would be introduced as Viscera, wearing whiteout contact lenses, bleach blonde mohawk a black bodysuit that made him look like a bdsm kool-aid man he's good he'd spend the next few months helping taker be evil he'd mostly work shows on sunday night heat and tag with midian so eventually the ministry would break up and viscera would get involved in the hardcore title scene at uh, wrestlemania 2000 <laughs> sorry <laughs> At WrestleMania 2000, Viscera would be part of a hardcore title battle royal for the Hardcore Championship, a 10-man, every man for himself, Falls Count Anywhere match, where you had to last all 15 minutes as champion to stay champion. Viscera Pentaz winning the title, holding it for 6 minutes and 51 seconds before losing it to Funaki. Hardcore Holly would win the match. I don't think I'm supposed to like this match. Oh, I love that. I fucking love this <laughs> It was this great. Match. Real quick, uh, it was Taz, Viscera, Funaki, Rodney, Joey Abs, Thrasher, Pete Gas, Taz again, Crash Holly, <laughs> and they botched the shit out of the ending with Hardcore Holly winning. So by the summer of 2000, Viscera was again released, and over the next four years, he'd worked in the Indies across America and the world, and he did this tour of military bases wrestling around the world for soldiers, which I thought was pretty cool. By summer of 04, he was back in WWF, but it was now called the WWE. Viscera's comeback would be part of a surprise attack on September 16th's SmackDown, where he helped beat down The Undertaker with fellow former Ministry member Gangrel, as well as Orlando Jordan, on behalf of WWE champion JBL. Viscera then hopped over to Raw, where he'd make sporadic appearances, puttering around the mid-card, and mostly wrestling Sunday Night Heat. 
April 2005, Viscera teamed up with Trish Stratus as part of her feud with Lita and Lita's husband, Kane. He wanted to do more than team up. Yeah, he did. As part of this angle, he got to kiss Trish Stratus. I would take that over King of the Ring any day. And he confirms very soft lips. Oh, wait, wait. (laughs) Very soft lips. (laughs) So Viscera would face Kane at 2005's Backlash, losing the match. Afterwards, Trish got on the microphone to internet bully Viscera to his face. So Viscera shook her, gave her a big splash, thrusted his dick in her general direction, or in wrestling talk, popped the roof off the place, turning face for the first time since 95. Was this the era that he was wrestling in, like, silk pajamas? He's about to. He's about about to put those on. He's building up. You know, it's a a very smart progression. And This character development. (laughs) We gotta get there. Even as, this is 2005, so now I'm, like, in my 20s, even as a, a young, horned-up man in my 20s who was taking testosterone boosters, even in my 20s, <laughs> even I was like, you know what? The, the We're getting in some out-of-bounds areas right here. It's pretty creepy if you go rewatch this It's stuff. super creepy. <laughs> and in this climate now, it is uh, assault in in all aspects of it. So it's just very weird. It is not an angle the Me Too movement would be like, fuck yeah. Speaking of those awesome ass smoking jackets, it's it's now that he starts putting them in. He turned his attentions to ring announcer Lillian Garcia, and he tried to get with that every single week. Now, vengeance in June, Lillian finally caved, which is a love story from the 1940s. Like, well, your grandpa wouldn't leave me the fuck alone, so we had kids. Because <laughs> there was 20 people in the town. And fuck. <laughs> well, Lillian and... Big Daddy V probably have more in common than you guys may ever know. Here's a story, and I don't know when in this history's podcast it's it's ever going to fit in or any of the multitude of so podcasts that I'm on where I'm going to tell the story about Lillian Garcia. I remember being in catering one day for extra talent. They always have this wonderful spread in catering. It's, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. But I overheard them say something. They made a special order for Lillian. I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe she has dietary concerns. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really seem because they have vegetarian options. Because catering is also for, like, the crew in in the building and techs. So some of those people are vegan or they're allergic to things. So that's one of the beauties of WWE catering. It's for everybody. So why are they doing something special for Lillian? And Lillian Garcia, attractive and very small woman. It's much smaller than, like, camera doesn't do justice how small of a person she is. She She's tiny. Cameron takes off 50 pounds. Yeah, for her, yes. She is a very small woman. And they're like, okay, well, here's your special order. And they brought out ribs, macaroni and cheese. Fuck yeah. Like a meal that I wouldn't even eat on my biggest cheat day ever. And I go, holy fuck, that's a lot of food for this small woman. So I'm thinking that part of the connection between Lillian... And Big Daddy V is their buffet busters. Oh, dude. Uh, they went out some night, got hammered, ate the shit, bang-banged every restaurant up. Like their first date had to be Golden Corral. <laughs> and, and and everybody's looking at Lillian like, oh, where does it all go? But then they look at Viscera like, ah, oh, I know where it all goes. <laughs> so at Vengeance, Lillian sang to Viscera in the ring and proposed to him. But before he could say yes, it was time once again for everybody to come aboard the Ho Train. I was going to do it along with you, but you just did that. 
So the Godfather, out of nowhere, comes down, and this is a beautiful metaphor for life because Viscera has to choose between settling down <laughs> or all these hoes. I mean, we all know when we had that proposition. Somehow we... this storyline's less creepy. Like, this is actually a dramatic tale oh, it is. of every you know conversation that men have to have before they settle down with a woman like this it has some dramatic chops to it because thankfully at least this one's in public whereas trish was just all by herself mm -hmm. <laughs> so after some deliberation it was all aboard and lillian was left in the ring to cry and go to buffets alone i think you mean all a horde ah puns <laughs> And of uh, course, let's let's humiliate our ring announcer, who we're going to see between right, each one. Literally matches. every match, <laughs> every match, we're going to see this woman who was jilted, and let, let let's let's put her humiliation on stage. I'm sure Vince McMahon thought it was hilarious. Like, ha ha, done got turned down. Bring her back out. Have her announce the tag team titles. Ha ha. Remember, remember what you got a heartbroken by that fat son of a bitch. Ha ha. That's funny. Get that on there. What the fuck's a burrito? <laughs> After this, Viscera teamed up with Val Venus to form V-Square, and they tagged together for almost nine months, mainly on Heat. They'd get some shots at the Tag Team Championship, never winning, and then when Val was sidelined with a legit injury in April of 06, Viscera returned to singles wrestling. So in June of 07, Viscera would be repackaged as Big Daddy V and sent to WWE CW as the hired muscle of Matt Stryker helping him in his rivalry with the Boogeyman. What a sentence. Oh, dude, that, that feud. Do you remember where you were when it went down? <laughs> Fuck. So uh, in uh, WWE's ECW, he'd, he'd face people like Boogeyman, Tommy Dreamer. He'd have a little feud with CM Punk. <sighs> we, have, we haven't brought him up much in this podcast. May we never cover him. Long live CM Punk. Well, we haven't talked about a lot of guys who are 0-2 in MMA. So. Fuck you. Big Daddy V would kind of be an anchor for WWE's ECW, kind of being a veteran, holding down the fort until his last TV match on March 11th, 2008, on an episode of ECW on Sci-Fi, losing to CM Punk by a countout in a Money in the Bank qualifier match. After that, Mabel slash Viscera slash Big Daddy V was released from WWE for the final time, August 8th, 2008. From there, he was back on the Indies. He eventually ended up in All Japan in 2010, wrestling as Big Daddy Voodoo, and he'd win the tag belts. Uh, he had one great indie match that stood out to me. Mabel versus Snitsky with Gilberg as special guest referee. <laughs> that sounds as good. Yeah, he was one of those mainstays like on the Indies, like like a Northeast Wrestling or a Big Time Wrestling, like all the shows that were fundraiser shows. I'm sure there's a great draw like coming off the air, like, hey, we have a local baby face or I have a local big guy and let's let's bring in Big Daddy V or Big Daddy Voodoo as we're as we're as we're calling him. He'll put him over, he'll teach him a little something and learn. I'm sure there's there's a multitude of guys that you could probably like talk to, but his name doesn't come up a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of guys like, Oh man, I'm I wrestled him at a high school gym in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He was super cool and he made me feel comfortable and he taught me a thing or two. I'm sure there's Dozens of guys that have that story all over the Northeast. Nelson Frazier Jr. wrestled his final match ever as Big Daddy V getting a win over Rene Dupree wrestling in Cutter on October 5th, 2013. Then sadly, on February 18th, 2014, Nelson Frazier Jr. died of a heart attack just four days after his 43rd birthday. He was cremated 
And his widow divided his ashes into 500 pennants and gave them to his loved ones, which I think is like a super cool idea. I, I, I really love that. Not saying I want that. Eh, fuck it. I want that. When, Ooh. Nick, when Nick gets hit by a bus soon, we'll know because it's on record. <laughs> okay, so when Nick gets hit with a bus, no. we divided up between seven pendants to give to his seven loved ones. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Mabel, just one of those dudes too big for this world. You know, you're not going to see a lot of 400-pound 80-year-olds, and at some point, you have to start considering trimming down. With that, final thoughts on King Mabel. Jake had a lot of experience when he was growing up watching him. I kind of only knew Mabel of knowing of him, and he was kind of like... A C plus monster to fill in against Nash to kind of do it. But when I got into it, I really did all the research. I, like we've talked about his agility, he would take some bumps. I mean, he wouldn't just laboring around. He went for stuff, man. He wasn't that typical big guy. So I came to really respect him. He's not going to, there's not going to be too many great dramatic matches, but for what he was and for what he needed to provide, he did the hell out of it. And there was one little moment in a shoot interview the interviewer who's like Dr. Claw, he's the weirdest shoot interview ever guy. Oh my God, I don't know what's up with him. Very nice guy though, by the way, actually. Oh really? You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I, the DV that you, the, the footage that you saw, I actually collected that from him at his house late one night after a wrestling show. <laughs> and I just saw that guy WrestleMania weekend in New Jersey. Wow. It, so I'll tell him that you think he's an ugly son of a bitch. That's unusual. Well, the weirdest throughout the- uh, Okay, I'm sure he'll love that. Like, hey, my friend said you look unusual. <laughs> The reason it was so weird is because throughout the whole shoot interview, we don't see his face. We see this weird side back angle, and it's like Dr. Claw. You see his hand. He, tried, he, was, man. Tra- he was trying to move for the shoot interviews the way they're being filmed, because normally they're a voice off camera. He was trying to get himself over prior to like the guy at KFM Commentaries who solely gets himself over, Ooh, more yeah. so than the Shot fucking over. talent. At least this guy knew his part as being an interview and understood the the importance of it over the shoulder shot. It's, it's not even that. It's like a side. It's a t- shot. It's like Roman Polanski. Yeah, but much like shit. Jake Manning, the person behind the lens was fucking him over. I'm sure <laughs> if he was behind the camera, he'd get the proper right. shot. And I was because when he showed his face, I was like, oh, he's a good looking dude. Why? Why are you hiding your face? And a sweet man. I like how every time you talk shit about somebody on this podcast, I'm like, oh, I've met that guy before. <laughs> and I'm probably going to see him next week. I just called him a good looking man. Okay, you better have. <laughs> What's his name? Because I don't know his name. I don't fucking okay. know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who just buried who? <laughs> Speaking of people putting him over who he did indie stuff, you know the outlaw J.D. McKay? I think he's like old school dude. Found this quote for him. I think he worked him later in his career. He said, I have had the opportunity to work with Nelson Frazier and been thrown from the ring by him. And I'll say this. Nelson is one humble and nice human being who has never shown me that he has gotten the big head by being to the places he's been. Thinking, this is the big show. I was in the WWF. He's just another one of the boys in the back in the locker room when he worked local indies in Mississippi or Tennessee. A great guy with a legitimate exclamation point. And Mabel said that the one dream match he wished he would have had was Andre the Giant at WrestleMania. And I hope you're up there doing it, dude. My favorite run of his was obviously the big men on the mission as King and King Mabel. To me, that was like his best characters. You know, he wasn't like the best worker ever as far as like long epic matches. And, you know, early on he did hurt some people. But if you're not looking for like a five-star match, Mabel was super cool. Like he could do the spinning hill kick as a 500-pounder. That's just visually insane. He was also deceptively great on the mic he was always solid anytime he was handed a microphone 
And, you know, he had a good career. Even if it were just for a second, he was on the very, very, very top of the business. And, you know, he should be remembered for that. Mabel, uh, later in his life, once he, you know, had all the runs that he had, uh, he did a few indie shows, but he didn't do a whole heck of a lot of them. And always kind of rap with Big Daddy V, Viscera, Mabel is like, you know, he wanted some serious money for it. Like he wasn't going to get out and wrestle for it, which gives me a clear sign that he saved his money, which, you know, you feel like, hey, to get me to leave my home, you're going to have to pay this. So it was always like that, like throw that ridiculous number out. And if guys paid it, he would show up and do his, do his work. And also too, like, I'm sure as he got older, he put on more weight and obviously traveling. And I'm sure a man, he'd be like, Hey, if you're going to fly me in fly me in first class, because sitting in a coach seat is kind of an issue. And I, I believe he lived in Tennessee, I believe like Memphis or Nashville or in that area. So there's not a lot of like big shows happening in that area where if you lived in the Northeast, he going to get in a car and wrestle a lot of places. But obviously in that area, there weren't a lot of big shows with a lot of big money happening. That's why if there were bigger shows, it'd be like in the South. So he might travel in because flying at his size, I don't even want to yeah. think about that. <laughs> even at my size. And I'm the skinniest I've been since high school. So I didn't get to wrestle him because of, because of that. But like that's because he saved his money to, to the umpth degree. And he had some of the longest runs. But I did, I did meet him one time as a part of a crazy story that I'll probably tell some other time in, in a shoot interview or an extra talent podcast with Zane Riley, where I was backstage with Italian stallion and we basically just kind of broke into WWE <laughs> one day and uh, Italian stallion who decades prior met Nelson Frazier and, and gave him a start in his business and keep on stallion doesn't look the way he used to anymore. So stallion walked up to, to Mabel and he goes, he goes, uh, hey, hey, Nelson, it's me, Stallion. And immediately, not like, oh, he didn't blow him off. Like, Mabel grabbed him, shook his hand, gave him a big <laughs> hug. And he goes, Stallion, it is so good to see you again. Got, and, and he just went on and on. And he goes, he goes, Stal, you were so good to me. Stal, thank you so much for everything you did for me. And thank you, and tell George thank you as well. And, and I was there and Stalin was telling everybody that I was a student, which is not the case. Um, <laughs> and I remember Mabel looking at me and he goes, you listen to everything this man has to say. And I'm like, I'm not going to listen to this man. That's <laughs> like, we have broken into WWE locker room right now. And, and Mabel just goes, as this guy took care of me when I knew nothing and helped me and taught me so much. And him and George, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now if it wasn't without you. The fact that he didn't like big league, Stallion, the fact that he just gave him a big hug, happy to see him, didn't blow him off, and just gave him all the time in the world. And they talked for a few more minutes about other stuff that kind of get washes over in the craziness of that day, which was a big part of the story. But there's a small piece of that story where he just gave, professed his love for Stallion and thanked him multiple times. I don't know if he ever did that for George, but he definitely did that for Stallion before he passed to, to show his appreciation to a man that helped him out on step one of his journey. Also, too, like, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned how much Mabel was a part of my childhood, but not only my childhood, but one of my closest friends, Freight Train. $5 wrestling superstar. Freight Train's dream match was always to wrestle Mabel. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And I remember him telling me all the time, because Freight Train's always throwing names out who we should book and who he wants to wrestle. And I knew kind of the rap on Mabel was like, oh, he's kind of expensive and you got to find him in. So it was going to be very expensive to do it. But it was in the back of my mind, like, what if I could figure out a way 
that he could wrestle Mabel or team with him. Like that would be kind of cool. And I was trying to figure it out. And then of course he passed. And I remember Freight Train being really upset and really sad about it. And as much as I love Freight Train, that really kind of hurt me because I know you would never get that match. And I know that really, really hurt him. He was never going to get that dream match he, he always wanted. But a little piece about Freight Train. Freight Train got very popular because of a particular promo where he talked about putting the $5 wrestling title across his smooth belly. Hey, I'm going to put it right here on my smooth belly. Like everybody loved it. And that was the thing that launched him as like this internet sensation, launched $5 wrestling that became a large part of my life. And, and a lot of the good things in my life came from $5 wrestling. That line, smooth belly, came from a Mabel promo before SummerSlam 1995. Wow. And Freight Train remembered this one line. It's a promo I've seen before, but that line didn't hit me, but Freight Train recalling it, he was just, because I asked him one day, where did you get the smooth belly line? He's like, I remember Mabel saying at one time when he was going to wrestle Kevin Nash. So without Mabel, there'd be no Freight Train to share with the rest of the world. And then without Freight train, about $5 wrestling. I don't have a lot of the good things that I have in my life. You're in a gutter doing heroin. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, so people say, ah, oh, Mabel was whatever and did this and he was this and he didn't have these good matches, he didn't have the effect on the business. But just, he's had a large effect on my life and a lot of other people's lives that you don't even know about. And then, you know, we see these people on TV and you think they have these just kind of so so runs and you're like, why do they bring them back? And I don't get it. But, come to realize once you do a podcast like this and get down to it their effect on professional wrestling is much deeper and more rich than you could possibly ever imagine that is our episode on mabel thanks so much to everyone out there supporting our patreon over at patreon.com slash tim bell pod also big big thank you to zach geller and jeremy mcbride you know jeremy you've been supporting a lot of things i know you just bought a power professional wrestling t-shirt so i thank you for that but thank you so much zach geller and jeremy mcbride for all your support on patreon we couldn't do the show without you guys seriously thank you jeremy and zach i want to say your damn name too because you seriously are helping us and making us feel like we're kind of getting better so i appreciate it and I run our Twitter usually, so I talk to both you fucks all the time. Oh, God. Good uh, cop, if, bad cop. If you want to help us out for free, rate and review wherever you're listening. The reason podcasts ask you to do this, it just helps you pop up in the algorithm. Or just tell a friend, like like it's the 1930s or something. You just, you just talk to another person. Check out SixSquirrelStudios.com if you're interested in podcast stuff. If you have your own, Don will hook you up. Find us at timbellpod.com or on social media at timbellpod. If you want to follow us individually, I'm Nicolessa on social medias. Jake is Manscout Manning on all the social medias. And Micah is jtrotter27 on Twitter. Mm-hmm. What's uh, t- you got Instagram? What's your Instagram? I don't know the damn thing. <laughs> okay. Just look up Micah Joseph Loving. There's probably just one of us in the whole universe. All right. Well, this is Tim Bell Pod. Sign off line. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Tim Bell Pod. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash Pod. There you can find bonus content, t-shirts, Man Scout Manning DVDs. You can even tell us who to cover in a future episode. That's patreon.com slash Pod.